I want to build a team of some bad people who can do some good. What are you really up to? Flag, it's a need to know. And all you need to know is you work for me. You need real soldiers, not these scumbags. Everyone has a weakness. And a weakness can be leveraged. That is just a mean lady. Yeah. We got a job to do. Light it up! Getting people to act against their own self-interest is what I do for a living. I'll accept the consequences. I am your consequence. I didn't believe the stories. Nobody does. Suicide Squad. Rated PG-13. Experience it in IMAX 3D. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Is It Yours? The movie review program where we ask ourselves, is it yours? Today, we are looking at the very recently released Suicide Squad movie. Uh, I am joined today by my good buddy, Mr. Andrew Leyland. Hello. And I can tell you that I did not have great anticipation of this one. Uh, it's not a comic book I really read much of. I am somewhat familiar with the characters, but I can't tell you I have a great reading history with any of them. And then you top that off with the lackluster results of some of the most recent DC movie projects, and combine that also with some advanced negative buzz. So I went in open-minded, no real opinion as to where I, where I was going to go with it, but not expecting a lot. And to a degree, I was happily surprised by what I got. Uh, how about you, Andy? Uh, I'm, I'm pretty much the same. I've, I've got every issue of Suicide Squad, the comic books, apart from four, the John Ostrander run, that I picked up all of them in the cheapy bins, which is quite remarkable now when you consider that Suicide Squad number one's a 40-quid book. I got mine for 50 pence. So I've read bits of it, but I've never actually read all of it because I'm missing four issues. And I only went watching this because my daughter wanted to watch it. My daughter wanted to see Harley Quinn. So that was the only reason that we went. So we waited until cheap day so we didn't pay full full whack for it. And uh, I was pleasantly surprised by how much I enjoyed it with the caveat that it is a mess. But it's a delightful, anarchic mess. It's if the young ones made a superhero movie. Yeah, I, I mean, I would agree with the it's a mess, and <laughs> I enjoyed it. I don't know if I would go as far as to say delightful. <laughs> um, you know, it, it felt like a, you know, to a great extent, it felt like a series of clips put together. Uh, it, it really didn't feel cohesive as far as filmmaking goes and editing goes. There was, there was a lot of music video feel to it to me. Oh yeah, the the first half an hour very definitely. But David Ayer has talked in numerous different places how there were there were as many as six different cuts of the film as they whittled it into shape and decided what direction they wanted to take it. I think it was very heavily influenced by both the success and tone of Guardians of the Galaxy and Deadpool, and it's tried very much to be that kind of movie. And I think it's only become that kind of movie in the editing room. I don't think Aya planned on it being either of those two films. And the success of those two led people to, A, think this was going to be like Guardians, like a, a fun, slightly um, 
slightly over the top Star Warsy type romp, but with the DC universe. But at the same time, having that anarchic, slightly bite in the hand that feeds you humour of Deadpool. And I do wonder if in the editing room they've actually done this film a disservice by trying to emulate the success of two other movies. This hasn't been allowed to be its own movie. Well, I mean, the word was that there was very, very heavy influence by the studio on this movie. And that they went in for reshoots and recuts following Batman v Superman. And then they did again following Deadpool. And now having walked out and had, you know, kind of a middle of the road opinion on this movie. I I hate to show my whole hand so early, but uh, I, I can't say whether the influence by the studio was a positive or a negative because maybe they took a very bad movie and made it pretty good or maybe they took a really good movie and made it mediocre Mm. you know it's difficult to say uh so you know i guess we 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 have to kind of review it for what we got yeah we have to look at it for what we saw and what we we have yeah we have to look at what we saw and what we saw was two completely different films we got a suicide squad movie and we got a joker and harley quinn movie and apparently Jared Leto's not been not been uh, quiet in talking about how much of the Joker stuff was cut from the film. But ultimately, the Joker's not important to the plot yeah, in the jo- any Joker's way. Joker's more of a side story or, or a background story. Yeah, you could, you could probably chop even most of the scenes that are left in the film that have him in, and it not really impacts on the film at all. The only bits you really need, the flashback to Arkham, and then the first appearance of Harley where she's dancing with him, which is a recreation of the Alex Ross cover. And then at the end, when he shows up and, and picks her up in the helicopter and you think he's dead. They're the only bits you really need. It's the only place where he impacts on the plot. Yeah, I, I pretty much agree. And uh, Well, let, let me just hit on. The cast to this movie was Will Smith as Deadshot, Jared Leto as the Joker, Margot Robbie as uh, Harley Quinn, Joel Kinnaman uh, was that a flag? Yeah, he was flag- He was a last-minute replacement as well. Uh, Viola Davis was... <laughs> Amanda Waller. Okay. <laughs> Jai Courtney was the uh, was Boomerang. Captain Boomerang. Jay Hernandez was Diablo. Adewale Akanoyo Agbaji. <laughs> That's him. He was in Lost. You remember him from yes, Lost. He was, he was Mr. Echo. Echo. Yeah. And he was uh, Killer Croc. And then we have Ike Barano, Barano Holtz. I'm guessing Slipshot, Slipknot, but I don't yeah. know. Scott Eastwood, who I believe is, was just a soldier, but he gets in the credits because he's Clint's son. Mm. GQ, he was. Who was it? GQ. GQ. Was his name. Well, apparently that was his nickname because he's a very handsome guy who dresses well. So they call him GQ after the magazine. Mm-hmm. I don't recall actually ever seeing him in the movie. Uh, I think he stands near Flag a couple of times. <laughs> so uh, Let me give the plot here. In the aftermath of Superman's death, as depicted in Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice, intelligence operative Amanda Waller assembles Task Force X, a team of dangerous criminals. Former psychiatrist Harley Quinn, elite hitman Deadshot, pyrokinetic ex-gangster El Diablo, opportunistic thief Captain Boomerang, monstrous cannibal Killer Croc, and specialized assassin Slipknot at Belle Reve Penitentiary and places them under command of Colonel Rick Flagg, 
to be used as disposable assets in high-risk missions for the United States government. Each member has a small bomb implanted in their neck designed to detonate should any member rebel or try to escape. One of Waller's intended recruits is Flagg's girlfriend, Dr. June Moon, a former archaeologist who is possessed by a witch goddess known as Enchantress after touching a cursed idol. Enchantress quickly turns on everyone, deciding to eradicate mankind for imprisoning her. She besieges Midway City with a horde of monsters, begins creating a weapon, and summons her brother, Incubus, to assist her. Waller then deploys the squad to extract a high-profile mark from Midway. However, the squad is briefed and put under the impression that what is going on in the city is a terrorist attack. Ahead of their departure, they are joined by Katana, who wields a myst mystic sword and acts as Flag's bodyguard. Harley's lover, the Joker, finds out about her predicament and tortures Griggs, one of Waller's men, into leading him to the facility where the nanobombs are made. He blackmails one of the scientists involved in the program into disabling Harley's bomb. On their approach, their helicopter is shot down, forcing them to proceed on foot to their target. On the way, Boomerang convinces Slipknot that the bombs are a ruse meant to keep them under control. Slipknot attempts to escape and is killed, while the team is attacked by Enchantress's minions. The team manages to escape to their final destination as a safe room, where they learn their mark is Waller herself, who is attempting to cover up her involvement. The squad escorts Waller to a rooftop for extraction, but the arriving helicopter has been hijacked by the Joker and his men, who open fire on the squad while Harley climbs aboard. However, the helicopter is shot down by Waller's men, and Harley jumps out while Joker seemingly perishes in the explosion, after which Harley rejoins the squad. Alerted to Waller's whereabouts, Enchantress's minions arrive and capture her. Deadshot finds secret files and learns the truth about Enchantress. Deadshot confronts Flag, who confesses the truth, causing the squad members and Katana to leave Flag. With Waller compromised, Flag relieves the squad of the mission, but chooses to continue. Realizing they have an opportunity to prove themselves, they soon rejoin and locate Enchantress and Waller at a partially flooded subway station. A group of Navy SEALs led by Lieutenant GQ Edwards and Killer Croc go underwater to plant a bomb underneath Incubus while the squad fights Enchantress and her forces. El Diablo embraces his abilities and manages to hold Incubus down as the bomb goes off underneath, killing them both as well as Edwards. The squad members battle Enchantress together, but are ultimately defeated. Enchantress offers to fulfill their deepest desires in exchange for their allegiance, and Harley feigns interest to accept in order to get close enough to cut out Enchantress's heart. Just after Killer Croc throws explosives into the weapon and Deadshot shoots them, destroying the weapon. Flag takes Enchantress's heart and crushes it, killing Enchantress and freeing June. Waller, still alive, emerges and the squad members are returned to Belle Reve with 10 years taken off their sentences. All but Captain Boomerang are allowed special privileges. In a mid-credits scene, Waller meets with Bruce Wayne, who agrees to protect her from the backlash of Enchantress's rampage in exchange for access to the government's files on the expanding metahuman community. The end. Yay. Ah, oh, that was a mouthful. It didn't <laughs> seem that deep when I was watching it. Uh, it didn't come across as that deep when you were watching it, no. But maybe that's the strength of the film. Maybe that's one of the things that it, it gets across its plot quite well amidst all this weirdo action. I mean, my, my issue... I don't really have any issues with it. I went for a fun night out and that's what I got. But it's tonally... It is Dark Knight again, isn't it? It is Batman versus Superman. It's always dark. It's always raining. It always looks miserable. You know, if I want it dark, rainy and miserable, I'll just go and spend the evening in Manchester. I don't want to go and watch that <laughs> on the film. So, but 
tonally, this one was at least a little bit funny, and there was a little bit of, of lightheartedness to it. And that's largely been brought by Margot Robbie, who, at this present moment in time, I think was perfectly cast as Harley Quinn. I can't think of an actress currently working who probably could have done a better job than her. Kristen Bell probably could have pulled it off, maybe. But Robbie was was brilliant in it. Well, she she manages to pull off the you know psycho the lovable psychopath, which is not easy to do. Mm. You know, she's she's a coiled spring that could just lash out and kill you at any moment. And yet, you know, she makes you smile and laugh. And, and you know, there, there's something to be said for that because uh, that goes to also one of my criticisms of the film. And I, I'm joining the, uh, the internet rush here. But I didn't like Jared Leto as the Joker. I didn't like I did, I didn't him. mind it, I'll be honest with you. I, I didn't care for the look. And... Again, as I just mentioned with Harley Quinn, Harley Quinn, I think there's supposed to be a certain charisma to his madness. And I think there has been in the past. I think other pl- people who've played the Joker have managed to pull that one off. In this instance, I find him to be totally just distasteful. Yeah, my, my main problem with the characterization of the Joker in the film is that this David Ayer has said that this is post the death of Robin. And this is a Joker that has been beaten mercilessly by Batman. So he's slightly different from the Joker you've seen before. And all right, you've got to buy into that to buy into this world that DC are trying to, to create on film. So all right. I don't think that was adequately explained in the film. I only know that from reading an interview with David Ayer. But okay, we'll, we'll go with it. My problem with the, the Joker in this film is the film depicts the Joker as being obsessed with Harley. Whereas in the comic books and the animated series, the Joker doesn't give a stuff about Harley. He uses her interest in him to his own benefit. It's a very manipulative and abusive relationship that this film completely gets totally wrong. They genuinely love each other in this movie. And I thought that was that was off because that makes the Joker in this film come across as very rational in an awful lot of what he does. You never get his insanity in this film. You get that he's, he's slightly kooky, but he, he knows exactly what he's doing, and he just happens to have greener and a white face. Yeah, no, that, that's not a bad take on it. Uh, he, and, and his love for Harley, which is clearly shown in this movie, gives him a vulnerability that he never, ever has in any other portrayal. Mm. So, yeah, it, it, I don't know. I, I just the, the metal teeth I found disturbing... Well, they're apparently there because Batman knocked all his teeth out. Okay. Well, in we the wake of have, Robin's we death. We do have the the Robin costume in Batman v Superman. So if we can connect the dots on that, we do have that that story occurred. And if you have any history of you know the character in mind, that's not told to you in the movie, but you know you can put that together, I guess. But I don't like it. <laughs> that's the <laughs> problem. The tone of this movie is supposed to be, you know, it is dark, but there's supposed to be a humor to it all. And I just didn't find the Joker to be humorous. And that, to me, that's one of the problems. Even even as, as insane as, you know, I guess Heath Ledger was the previous Joker that you would feel the most threatened by. Mm-hmm. And even he had a certain humor to the way he approached things and the way he was presented in the movie. I didn't see any humor at all. In this portrayal or in the way this one was written. And that was one of my biggest criticisms of the movie. Now, I I generally see these comic movies with my kids now. And I get the advantage of my daughter's insight on it because she is familiar with them from movies and pretty much the movies alone. 
So when we when we were driving home and we were talking about the movie, uh, you know, we were talking about the different characters, and I said I really didn't care for the way the Joker was portrayed, and she said, you know, what was wrong with him? And I started talking about the way he is in the comics, and you know, to her it didn't bother her at all. So I always have to take that into account as well. You know, I, I, like I said, I like having that little bit of insight. Do you remember in Batman the Animated Series there was the episode where a man had unknowingly run afoul of the Joker and that everywhere he looked the Joker was there? Yes, and then the Joker starts manipulating him into doing stuff for him, doesn't he? Yes. Yeah. And that's the way I think of him as a threatening... Because the guy, the guy was terrified of him. Yeah, he was terrified of him without the Joker ever actually doing anything. And that that's what I picture as the Joker. And I think they tried to get that across in this movie, in the scene in the club with with the, uh, I guess, other gangster. And he starts saying, you know, like, Harley was trying to get him to say he was attracted to her. And he knew, like, basically, no matter what I do, I'm screwed here. Mm-hmm. If, if I say I'm attracted to her, he's going to be angry at me because he's jealous. And if I say I'm not attracted to her, you know, he's going to be angry at me because I'm insulting her. Mm. And and that was the one scene where I thought they kind of portrayed just that seething volcano the right way. Yeah. Yeah, see, I always go back to Steve Englehart and Marshall Rogers. That's the Joker. He will only kill somebody if it's funny to do so. Yeah, well, he I won't, like the he... anarchy aspect of it, which I didn't really feel that much in this. Mm. In this, um, you just felt he was, you know, like that, that he was somehow invulnerable and you don't know why. Yeah. So I kind of felt that... So the thing with Harley as well, that whole ending... If, well, the entire ending of the film, why, did, why does Harley stick around? Why does Harley come back and save the squad? We're supposed to get that for the first time she actually feels a part of something. But I didn't get that from the film. I got that she didn't want to be there. She just wanted to be with the Joker. And it's the same with Captain Boomerang. I, I actually thought Captain Boomerang was one of the best ones in the film. Because he was the most truest to himself. He, he didn't give a rat's ass about these people. He was here because he had that thing of your bomb in his neck. And my favourite scene in the film is the scene in the bar. Where Flag hasn't even finished telling them that the, the, the neck bombs have been disabled. You can go if you want to. And Boomerang's out the door. Mm. He's got no loyalty to these people. He's not sticking around. I actually would have preferred it if Boomerang hadn't come back at the end for the big fight. He'd just gone then, and then we'd got a last-minute scene where Batman just dumps him off at Arkham Asylum in front of Amanda Waller and says, don't lose this again. <laughs> that would, that that would have been, been more true and, and clever, I, I agree. Yeah, but I, I thought Jai Courtney was really good as Captain Boomerang. I because liked if, the scene along the lines of what you're talking about. I like the scene when he manipulated Slipknot into yeah. trying to escape. It's like, well, I'm not going to risk my own life. Let me let me get this idiot to do it. Yeah, and I thought he was really good, and I wanted to actually see more of him just being Captain Boomerang. I think, again, one of my major issues with the film was like Batman versus Superman. It felt a bit stuffed. It felt like the Joker's only in this film, and Harley's only in this film, and Killer Croc's only in this film, because they're all Batman bad guys that they don't have to now set up for a future Batman film. They've already done it. And Captain Boomerang's only in this film to set up the Flash movie, because the Flash makes an appearance in this as well. Yeah. So it, it it felt like, rather than... And we've, we've, we've not used the M word throughout this podcast, because we don't really want to compare the two. But it, it's not felt like DC's approach has been as organic. It's felt like we've stuffed everything into our film so that it's all there and we can just use it next time. And there was a little bit of that to this. I did like that Will Smith was 
comfortable now enough in his own superstardom that he can play a bad guy. Um, he's not really a good bad guy. Deadshot kills people. He freely admits that. He doesn't kill women and children, but he kills people, and he's not repentant about that. And I also like that Smith was is now confident enough in his superstardom that he lets Margot Robbie steal the film. But she can't steal the film if he's not there as the centerpiece. But I ultimately didn't think that his story was the central driving force of the film. The central driving force, the character who changes as we go through the movie, is Diablo. It's his film. It's about him. He's the one who goes through an arc, a redemptive arc, from the beginning to the end. He's the central character of this movie. No one else changes at the end of it. So he's the one who the story's really about. Everything else is just set up for other films. And then you've got that ending where Bruce Wayne's now Nick Fury and he's recruiting everybody for the Justice League. And it's is the implication at the end of this that Amanda knows he's Batman. I didn't see that in the movie, but I do take that from the comics and from, you know, every other source material that she does know. Right, because really she actually says it. to him, you need to stop working nights. Mm. Well... I mean, I get. I, I'm like I said. I'm just taking the assumption that she knows, and then you throw that line on, into it, and I think that that's a little support for it. I, I always, uh, I always like the scene again, going to the cartoons, the Injustice League Unlimited, when when she confront when he confronts her, and she basically lets him know that she knows who he is, mm-hmm. and he just says, "Okay, let's that's fine. Let's go step into the light together," knowing he's got so much on her that she yeah. would never betray him just out of her own self interest. No, he said that was a telling line. Yeah, I think they're very much going for that relationship between the two of them. I, I did like Amanda in this film. I did like Viola Davis as Amanda Waller. I liked most of them. I didn't think, again, anything was wrong with the actors. Even Jared Leto, he's portraying the Joker that he's written in the script. Yeah, I didn't care for the way he was written, essentially. And, and Amanda Waller, I liked the way she played it. I thought she played it very well, in fact. Just physically, I'm just looking for somebody to be just a slightly bit more imposing and frightening, which I didn't feel like she quite had that physically. No. I'm, well, I'm she's just looking for like a kingpin from her. Yeah, essentially. She's much better than um, the girl from the Arrow TV show, who was also in Spartacus. Mm-hmm. Or, so, uh, or when they had her in uh, the Green Lantern movie. Yeah. So we've actually seemed to have nailed that one. Um, the guy from Stranger Things is in it which was nice. The sheriff guy from Stranger Things is in here somewhere. But you know what we've not mentioned? Who's that? Batman. Oh, yeah. <laughs> His part is kind of negligible, I thought. Mm. You know, he, he was used as a, tool, as a tool to show, okay, look, we caught, you know, this is how we caught these people. And otherwise, he was there at the end to, you know, he's putting the band together like Nick Fury. Mm. I would think I would have preferred that final scene to actually be him making contact with one of the either, either one of the pe- future justice leaguers or one of the suicide squad for whatever reason maybe maybe visiting with Harley or something and you know giving his thoughts what I don't know mm. it's just just him sitting with with um, with Amanda Waller I, I don't know it, it wasn't it wasn't quite you know it didn't it didn't make me gasp and say oh I can't wait for the next movie because I, yeah. I feel like we've, we've already had that we already have him putting together the files on these people. Yeah, that was that. I think that was a bit of a misstep, especially seeing as the Justice League trailer and the end of Batman vs Superman has told us everything that we need to know about that. We don't. We didn't really need to see Bruce Wayne in this movie. I didn't mind the Batman scenes at all. I actually like the the bit where he just zooms, falls into the alleyway, 
behind Deadshot is beautifully shot and magnificently Batman. So now, had his daughter not been there, was Deadshot going to kill Batman? Well, see, that I was just going to say, my problem with the scene is that's not how Batman would approach Deadshot. Batman would just not land in front of the guy who can shoot anybody. And this goes to what we've said a lot of times, Michael and I on Hey Kids Comics, is that the Batman of the films is never as smart as the guy in the comics. The Batman of the films wouldn't have risked Deadshot's daughter, of the comics, sorry, wouldn't have risked Deadshot's daughter like that. And he wouldn't have approached Deadshot like that when he was with his daughter. I think he would have either taken him from the top, like he does in the Arkham games. He would have just zoomed down on the back grapple, grabbed him and took him up to a rooftop. Or he would have approached him when he was on his own. And that's always been, that's my problem throughout every single Batman film that we've had so far. Only Mask of the Phantasm has got smart Batman of the theatrically released Batman movies. Yeah, I, I again, I'm agreeing with you there because when I saw that scene, for all intents and purposes, they're showing it that Batman's, he's dead. If not mm. for Deadshot's daughter intervening, he's dead. And not only is he dead, but he's dead because he put himself in that situation. Yep. And that doesn't make sense. So I'm trying to say to myself, okay, if he's the Batman, we know he's got to have plan B that if Deadshot, you know, goes to take the shot, there's something that's stopping it. But I can't see what it was. And to just make you do that on faith, I don't think is good enough. Mm. You know, but but I understand, you know, that, that they wanted it to, that... uh you know, that, that he doesn't kill Batman because, because of his daughter, and that's his, like, redemptive strike. You know, his, his his ability to redeem himself is totally based in his love for his daughter. I, I, I get that, but maybe the setup needed to be a little different. Maybe he needed to get the upper hand on Batman just because, he, you know, he caught Batman off guard or whatever, not because Batman put himself in that position. Mm. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I just like that shot of him landing. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, oh, cine- uh, you know, from a cinematography point of view, it's a, it's a mm. great shot. And I did like him on top of the car in, in when he was chasing Joker and Harley. And there's a part of me that's like, this is how they should really do Batman. He shows up, he does cool stuff, takes him gone, and then he disappears and you don't really see him. There's a part of me that just wants to see a whole slew of DC movies where Batman just has cameo appearances, but he never actually gets his own film. Well, and, and I like the fact that that kind of helps the legend of Batman being, you know, people thinking he is just a legend, mm. that he doesn't really exist, because, you know, he, he's never around long enough for people to take photos of him or whatever, you know what I mean? Like, that kind of thing. And, and when he is fighting these guys, it's always away from the public eye. You know, he's, he's not out in the middle of Broadway fighting. Mm-hmm. I, I, yeah, I kinda, you know, I know some people don't really don't like that Batman as urban legend thought, and I don't like it as being you know the pervasive thought. But I don't mind the fact that like some people don't even believe he exists. I kind of mm. like that. No, I like the being a mix. I like the being people talking about this boogeyman, this Batman that exists around Gotham, and people who have no cause to ever come in contact with him. Just going, oh, you, you cut, you're talking out your ass. He doesn't, he's not real. He's a because there are people denying stuff that is scientifically proven. So it'd probably be quite easy for Batman to say, for people to say, oh, no, Batman's not real. Even if you show him a camera phone shot of him, chances are they'd rationalise it away if they don't want to believe in him. So I, I don't mind that. I mean, it becomes harder and harder in the year of drone technology and satellites that the, you know they wouldn't be able to track him. But I think you've got to buy into that. To buy into the the legend, essentially. If you're not going to buy into that, there's no point watching a Batman film. Yeah, well, I think that you know, if you start 
if you start putting all the surveillance technology into effect, then you start wondering, you know, how anybody could even have a secret identity or anything. You know, it it, it makes the whole, you know, the whole private life aspect of these movies just crumble. Well, and I think that's I think that's down to um, uh, Zack Snyder. Zack Snyder said in an interview on the Empire podcast that in the 21st century, he thinks the idea of superheroes having secret identities is dumb. He actually said that in an interview. And I think that this is his influence over the movies coming to the fore, that Amanda knows who Batman is and that secret identities just don't matter anymore. They've killed Clark off in Batman vs. Superman. None of the Suicide Squad have secrets or secret identities, but they're the bad guys. So you don't really expect them to. And I think that's that's Zack Snyder. Yeah, and I'm not, I'm not the biggest Zack Snyder fan. Well, I think it's a case-by-case basis. I think, you know, Superman needs to maintain his secret identity because it's Clark that keeps him grounded. Batman needs to maintain a secret identity because he's a vigilante. You know, the the police are just going to rock up on his door and arrest him. Spider-Man, loved ones, Daredevil, he's a lawyer, so all of his cases are thrown out of court. But there's no reason for Thor to have one. There's no reason for Captain America to have one. I don't, we don't know the reason yet that the Flash in the TV show, in the film, sorry, is going to have one. But the TV show Flash is very fast and loose with his secret ID. He'll, he'll take his mask off in front of anybody. Yeah, it's a little, little too fast and loose with it. Yeah, a little, a little bit too, yeah. But on the whole, I didn't, I didn't think Suicide Squad was the awful thing that the, the critical opinion on Rotten Tomatoes would have you believe. I think it was it was a perfectly serviceable and entertaining two hours in the cinema. I didn't hate it, and I wasn't bored. That's the key criteria with me. Dark Knight Rises bored me. Batman vs Superman bored me. This didn't bore me. This was interesting enough until you get to the final act, where again it suffers the same thing that Deadpool did. That for the first two thirds, it is trying to do something different and innovative within the framework of the superhero genre. And then the ending is just the same ending that you've seen in all these other films. Ant-Man suffered from this as well. Yeah, well, it's, it's you know, get to the uh, the big boss battle. Yeah. You know, from from video from a video game perspective. And, and yeah, it did let me down at that point. And there's a few things about that that really let me down. One thing is, I got to say, the Enchantress and June Moon and the Enchantress in the two different looks she had. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, di- I really was impressed with the makeup quality in that because it's almost hard to tell that it's the same person mm. in those three different distinctive looks. Yeah, and the, they do have, there's an interesting, this was in the Empire podcast, so I can't claim this for me, but there's an interesting idea here that the way that Amanda Waller has got to June Moon and the Enchantress is through her heart by having a fall in love with Rick Flagg, and the entire movie is about getting hold of the Enchantress's heart. That's actually quite good writing. Yeah. And then, you know, if you want to take it a step further, it's almost like Amanda Waller doesn't have a heart. Yeah. So, you know, that that the contrast there. But ultimately, I thought they, they failed a lot on, on her execution because when push came to shove, she felt to me like the big bad in like a Power Rangers movie. Mm-hmm. Her and her brother. And then, you know, while, while, while the fighting is going on, she's up on the stage kind of doing a hula dance. And and she doesn't stop when the fighting's going on. She just keeps doing it. And I guess that's part of her enchantress powers that she gyrates and somehow that helps her create the powers. But it just really fell flat with me. And then also the makeup on her minions 
look to me like something out of, and I, I hate to diss this because I enjoy the show very much, but looked like the villains from a, you know, like the minions from a Doctor Who episode. <laughs> I thought that. Oh, they had a look of um, something from Buffy. I, I just think they could have been, they could have done much better on that. Yeah. I guess, you know, they probably didn't want to go with the zombie look because that's been overplayed of late with all the different zombie stories that have been out. Yeah. But but those, you know, kind of like bubble head pimple things, I, I don't know. It just, it, it just looked weird to me. And again, you know, out of Doctor Who or the Power Rangers or something along those lines, not what I expect to see on the big screen. No, no, I, I don't disagree with that, I think. But I think the the, the, gen, the ending was, was a bit disappointing in the sense that it just felt like it's become another big boss battle rather than something a little bit more subtle. Or, But I suppose that's... I mean, all of them end like that, don't they? Whether it's a superhero movie or a big science fiction movie or anything like that, they all end with stuff blowing up. Yeah, I mean, I guess that is the formula. And then, and sometimes they they take it to the you know to the to double the uh, you know the standard plot, and you'll have you know the enchantress, and at the end she gets a hold of the stone, which triples her powers, and now it's oh my god, how are we going to defeat her? We couldn't defeat her before. You know, like they didn't—they didn't go that plot line at least. So you know, or she turns into the big she beast or whatever. You know. Yeah, so. they didn't take it and then have her be enhanced again at the end, so that it was an even tougher battle. Yeah. So I, you know, it was okay, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. You know, overall, it was entertaining. I thought, uh, you know, it was the Harley Quinn show, guest starring Dead Deadshot. Really, that's what it felt like. Everybody mm. else was just secondary after the two of them. And and even he was secondary to her. But I thought, you know, like you said, I think they found an actress who pulled it off well. I think, you know, she, she really did seem to my limited reading like she, you know, she came off the comic book page. Mm. So I give her credit for that. Uh, again, none of these characters are, are anybody. I mean, some, I have varying levels of familiarity with them. The only one who I would say I'm more familiar with is the Joker. Everyone else I have somewhat limited uh, reading experiences with. A lot of my, my knowledge of Deadshot was when he was portrayed in the uh, Justice League Unlimited cartoon. So Yeah, I, you know. I'm like you. I have a, a passing knowledge of most of them. For, like, for me, Deadshot's um, primarily a Batman bad guy. Yeah, and, and you know, I never really read the Suicide Squad comic. We did cover a few issues of it on the uh, Back to the Bin score episode. Yeah, you just did issue one. And, uh, you know, that gave me some knowledge of it, but even then, it was... <laughs> it wasn't even the same iteration of the group, really. So, I'm going. I came into this kind of clean myself, other than a basic knowledge of each character. And it did feel like I said it felt to me like Harley Quinn came right out of the comics more than any other character. Uh, Killer Croc also, I thought, you know, was a little underplayed. I think they could have focused on him a little bit more. Well, I think Killer Croc became comedy relief, didn't he? I'm sorry, became what? He became comedy relief. Yeah, and I think he could have been presented as a little bit more threatening, but then possibly possibly they had that. There's, there is talk that there's a lot of stuff on the cutting room floor. And I do think that, you know, to some extent, they wanted to turn these guys into the lovable rogues. Mm. So possibly in making him more of a threat, he became less lovable, less likable, less comedy relief. Yeah, I mean, the, the problem that you've got with that is the killer crop that's in this film eats people. It actually says in his bio at the beginning, Etty's psychiatrist, and Diablo murdered his family. Mm -hmm. It's kind of hard to make those people lovable. 
Well, Diablo, though, I thought did a good job of just showing his pain mm. from what he had done. So he, like you, you know, as you said, he's the only one who really had an arc, and and the final, you know, his final outcome was kind of his redemption. Yeah. Where he sacrifices himself in theory, uh, you know, for for the good of everybody else. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, Deadshot was kind of your, you know, your standard. Okay, you know, let's give him as many Tony Stark type lines as we can. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I know that people hate it when we do compare the two, but. You, you can't deny Marvel's stamp has influenced the DC movies. They in are that, trying to do something I don't think different. it was a bad thing. No, I don't. I, I, like, I think Will Smith did a good job in this. You know, he, to some extent, he was being the Will Smith that we know from years of movies. Mm. You know, he almost seemed like Will Smith from Independence Day with Deadshot's abilities. Mm. But he's, he's also at the point now where he's tweaking his cinematic image ever so slightly. So he's kind of going down the, the Clint Eastwood path of playing with audience's expectations of what a Will Smith character is going to be. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, he because of the way he is with his daughter, that was his, that was his hook to make you like him. And I think it was okay. You know, I think that that served well. You know, it, it's difficult to present murderers in a way that they're likable. Mm. Especially murderers who are, don't have any kind of, uh, you know, any kind of grief over the fact that they've murdered, you know. But but they did manage to make, you know. Again, you know, I talked about the Joker not having that. I think Harley Quinn did. Mm. You, know, you know, one of my friends saw the movie on opening night, and he came back and he said, "Oh, you know, it's terrible. You know, you, you can't you can't have Harley Quinn just you know every five minutes coming into the scene and basically bopping somebody over the head with a hammer and make everybody laugh. That's you know that's not funny. And I really didn't see what he did. No, I didn't. I don't see that either. I I saw Harley, who was just obsessed with getting back to Mister J. Yeah, and and but, to have her obsessed with him is fine. That's what it's yes. supposed to be. Yeah, but it should but, not be. It should not go both ways. He should not return that loyalty. Now I heard. No. In the scene with the helicopter, when he supposedly gets killed, that in the original cut he cuts her rope because right. you know because she's in the way, not Which not makes because sense. he's trying to save her in any way, but because he you know she's she's got the weight on the helicopter that's keeping him from escaping or something, mm. and that seems more true to character. But the rumor I heard was that didn't test well, and that they decided to limit that in the in one of the later editing jobs. Right. Which is a shame, because that would be more in keeping with the Joker's relationship with Harley. Yeah, exactly. That 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 would be the one point where I'd say, okay, that's the Joker that I know. Mm. Yeah, but for him to just, you know, fight through heaven and hell to get to her, you know, that doesn't ring true. You know, he, he he's more, you know, he should be using her. Yeah, for his own advantage and gain. And when the minute that she's not of use to him, he cuts her loose. Now, one thing about the character of Boomerang is just shifting over here. I didn't think they used his abilities that well. Like, there was no point in the mission where you thought, oh, it's a good thing Boomerang is there. No, well, that's that's what I mean about he, he should have gone away at that bar scene and not come back. Because he doesn't play a major part in the finale, does he? He doesn't play a major part in any battle. <laughs> no. Because <laughs> he's, he's, like you said earlier on, he's the guy who's like, I'll just stand back here and let you do it all. Yeah, and because he, he doesn't want to be there, so that that was as much as I liked him because he was true to himself and true to his his comic counterpart. Yeah, there was no point where we saw him do really cool stuff with his boomerangs at the end to justify him sticking around. 
it's a very very difficult balancing act when you have this many characters to try and give them all their moment in the sun Mm. and it's real easy to sit back and say well you know it's impossible you can't do it but i don't think that's true you know we both recently saw star trek beyond Mm -hmm. and i thought that gave every member of the crew their moment in the sun yeah and it's a shame it's really a shame that star trek beyond seems to have performed quite poorly at the box office because it's the first one of the three abrams movies i thought was a star trek film so but and i don't want to go too much into star trek here but you know that to me shows you know as, as a recent example that you can take a huge ensemble cast and give everybody a moment where you kind of can root for them mm-hmm. and yet it still have it focus on your main character or main characters so you you could have had you know depending on how it's written you could have had will smith and uh, margot robbie have the center stage but still give everybody else their moment in the sun i don't think they really did a great job of distributing the time to everybody and again that may that may fall to post production editing Mm. And some of the editing I, I did think was weak in this movie. I, I thought some of the intro scenes came off a little bit too much as music video-ish. Oh, uh, the first 30 minutes is a music video. Yeah. Uh, or, or in fact, uh, you know, they, they went out of their way to, to pick very, very popular, you know, not very popular necessarily, very well-known uh, music to frame each character. And to me, it worked to varying extents. It was okay just seemed very, very heavy-handed to me, and also a little jarring when they would go from one to another. So I, I don't know. It, 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 it that part of it to me seemed a little amateurish. Mm. Well, again, uh, David Ayer said that beginning was put together when people didn't feel in screenings that the characters were introduced properly. Mm. So that entire montage with the writing at the side was added later. I think they, uh, I think they were also trying to play on Guardians of the Galaxy. Oh yeah, you know, we'll we'll pick this, you know, old music that's going to make everybody say, "Oh yeah, I know that song." Mm. So I, I don't know. And it's worked for them. The, the soundtrack went to number one. Well, there you go. <laughs> so, you know. Now, according to Wikipedia, which gets its money, its numbers from Box Office Mojo, uh, the movie cost one hundred and seventy-five million to make, which seems Ooh. exceptionally high. Well, how much did Will Smith cost? Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking. Yeah, I'm thinking a lot of it went there, uh, and probably Ben Affleck, even for as small as his part was, probably took a big chunk of it himself. But the box office worldwide, as of now, is reported at 485 million. So, so not a flop then. Not a flop, but uh, as we've we've talked about in the past, I don't know how the foreign gross works. Uh, you know, as as far as what they take in on that, I'm trying to look to see what the uh, domestic gross here is, because I think they take a smaller percentage of the foreign gross. Yeah, overseas gross is normally smaller simply because of prints and getting it to cinema chains and, and all of that stuff. But success in other territories can still sometimes lead to a sequel. Yes, absolutely. There's still talk that Tarzan's going to get a sequel because it performed much better in the rest of the world than it did domestically. All right, we, we almost have an even split here. Uh, it says, dom- I'm on Box Office Mojo now. Domestic gross is 241, 573, Foreign gross, 243, 400. Uh, right, that's interesting. So it's making as much money overseas as it is domestically. So domestically, then, it would not be considered a success. 
On a budget of 175 million. Well, we're at about one and a half times its budget domestically, and I, I and the formula I always heard was two and a half times. Mm. But so domestically, again, when, you, it's when, not when you factor in the foreign gross, I don't know how much that has to be in order to make it a success. But I'm thinking at at half a billion worldwide that we're probably in the success range. Yeah. It's not going to stop Warner Brothers making those superhero movies. I mean, Justice League's already filming. Wonder Woman's already wrapped. Yeah, I know. And, well, I'm trying to see what, what it is that they say about a sequel, because there is a note here on Wikipedia. In March 2016, it was announced that Warner Brothers would bring Ayer and Smith back for a sequel to be shot in 2017. The following month, Ayer expressed an interest in making the sequel R-rated. Fukuhora has stated that she wants to explore Katana's background in the sequel. Well, I, I gotta say, if they don't focus either the sequel or a solo movie on Harley Quinn, I think they're, they're misreading their audience. Because I think she's what, what success this movie has, I think, is, is really right on her coattails. Yeah, and I think the best thing they could do with the Suicide Squad sequel is not have Harley in it. But Margot Robbie is apparently actively championing a Harley Quinn and Art Joker movie. And given her success in this film, I think she may get it. And I think that's the best route they could do. A Harley Quinn movie and a Suicide Squad sequel that doesn't have Harley in it. And let the other characters breathe a bit. But, you know, the focus should be on let's get a real good script for the Suicide Squad movie. Because we're not going to have that hook of Harley Quinn that we had in the first one. Yeah. So they'd need a really good Dirty Dozen-esque story. Yeah, and when you, when you consider the Suicide Squad as a concept, it is very, you know, very much in line with stories like that. You know, okay, we're going to put this thing in your neck and you're going to die if you if you don't listen to us. I mean, it, it is a pretty, you know, old and commonly used trope. Mm. You know, although, you know, Suicide Squad has been around, you know, Task Force X and... Uh, you know, well, Suicide Squad was originally introduced in Brave and the Bold back in the 1960s, you know, in a different form. But you know, this, this is a concept that's been going around for a long, long time. So they can easily play with that again. And you can, you can switch up the cast very easily. Yeah, bring in some other DC low-rung low characters that you could do something with. And, and I think there should always be the feeling that every one of these characters is potentially in mortal danger. And... and you shouldn't get through missions where everybody survives and is happy very often. You know, they only, they only well, they took out Diablo and Slipknot in this one. Did anyone, nobody else died, right? No, nobody else died. Well, um, young, you know, young Scott a question, Eastwood did, but well, uh, there's a there's a question mark over Slipknot, really. I think there's a question mark under Di uh, uh, on Diablo. Over Diablo, well. yeah. Sorry, not Slipknot. Slipknot got his head blown off, didn't he? Yeah. <laughs> I think he's pretty dead. <laughs> they really gave you nothing of him as a character either. <laughs> Which, oh, I, no. I think that's fine. I had no problem with that. He was cannon fodder, wasn't he? Maybe for the next Suicide Squad, they could steal the Death Star plans. <laughs> well, you know what? It, it's not necessarily a bad thing thing to work off of. You say, okay, <laughs> let's let's do that. How are we going to do that in the DC Universe? And they can work with it. Yeah, I'll put them up against a real impossible foe. Someone on the level of Darkseid. That would be interesting. I don't think they'll ever go there because they're not going to want to use Darkseid in a... Unless... <laughs> I'm going to take that back. Unless you introduce Darkseid and they basically... They don't get well get killed, but they get their asses handed to them. And mm. now in come the Justice League. Well, there's always Trigon. a bad way to go. He's a, he's a heavy hitter, isn't he? They could bring Trigon in. Yeah. 
from the well, Teen Titans. They, they'll save that in case they make a Titans movie. Mm, probably. All right. I think we can uh, we could rate this one. You know the Jaws scale? I do know the Jaws scale. I've listened to your show. Thank you. <laughs> so, Andy, is this Jaws? No. No, by no means. Is this Jaws 2? <laughs> yes, it's Jaws 2. Okay. It's perfectly entertaining. Uh, I'm not in a rush to see it again or pay to see it again. But if I stumble across it on a channel, you know, on a cable channel or on Netflix or whatever, I would not be averse to watching it again. Unlike a certain other movie that came out this year that I really have no interest in ever seeing again. All right, that's fair enough. Now, the Jaws scale, I'm going to just reiterate because I try and do that every episode, is Jaws is a classic movie. This would have to fall in the, you know, close to perfect, really, really excellent movie to be ranked as Jaws. Jaws 2 is a solid, very entertaining movie with not too many flaws. Jaws 3 is a watchable movie, but nothing special. Jaws 4 is a piece of crap. (laughs) That is the Jaws scale. Not necessarily my reviews of each of those actual movies, but that is the scale that we go by on this show. And by that scale, I am going to give this Jaws 3, but it's desperately clawing trying to be Jaws 2. Yeah, I think I'm at the lower Jaws 2 scale. Yeah, and I'm at the upper end of Jaws 3. Yeah. And that's where I'm going to place it for purposes of this. Now, this episode's going to air out of sequence because when we do newer movies, I want to try and put them... I want to try and put the release as close to when the movie comes out as I can. No worries. So this one's going to come out... Actually, as we record this, this is coming out tomorrow. All right, so this is actually my first appearance on the show, even though it isn't. That's that's exactly the point I was going to (laughs) make. You're jumping ahead of your other appearance on the show, and this is going to push Terminator Genesis back two weeks again. (laughs) But this is going to come out tomorrow, and then we'll have the other movies that we have already recorded. It's jumping ahead of them on the queue. All right. Uh, In the meanwhile, we have an email address... And that is jawspodcast at gmail.com. If anybody wants to write in, uh, please feel free. I do have two, two, two pieces of email that I'd like to quickly get out. The first is from my good friend Russell Bragg. It says, hello, at least Paul. I'm assuming that you'll have a rotating guest lineup. Chris Honeywell, Ryan Daly, and Chris Franklin were great choices as your initial guests on your initial show, even though it sounded like Star Trek Beyond wasn't going to be first. I miss hearing Chris Honeywell as much since there haven't been any new Comics Monthly Mondays or Commentary Monthly Mondays in a long time. Chris Franklin I enjoy on Power Records, various guest spots, and I only recently started his Supermates podcast. Ryan Daly I hear the most since I am far behind on the Secret Origins podcast that I listen to him every day. Plus, he's special to me as a podcaster because I believe he was one of my first, if not the first, email I read on the DC Comics Presents show. Oh, well, I'm not here to wax those guys' cars, but to praise you for your new podcast. It's a great concept, considering you almost always are comparing movies you talk about to Jaws. Jaws may be hard to beat. I don't know. Only time will tell. I cannot talk too much about this movie or Star Trek in general. I never watched any of the television incarnations, and have only seen one movie, Star Trek Generations, and that was only because I was visiting a friend's new home, having dinner and a movie, and that's the movie he chose. But I enjoy the talk amongst the four of you and got a lot out of it. Considering I won't be seeing the movie, I was happy to hear that you have several of of these episodes in the can. So I look forward to another Is It Yours very soon. Thank you for keeping me entertained. Russell Bragg, Clarksburg, West Virginia, host of the DC Comics Presents show. Thank you, Russell. I appreciate that, as I always appreciate your emails. 
The second and only other email I have is from Kirk Greenfield. Paul, just listened to the first Is It Yours and enjoyed the review of Star Trek 3, but I noticed your personal audio track was hollow or out of phase. Was that intentional? Okay, I'm going to interrupt my own reading for a moment. Uh, no, that was accidental, and I think we've resolved the problem. There was an issue with my microphone, and I think it's fixed. A good question popped into my head as I listened to the very appropriate trailing audio of Leonard Nimoy saying, I won't leave you with my customary farewell. Good luck. In watching Into Darkness again just this last weekend on FX, young Spock contacts Ambassador Spock to ask how to defeat Khan. But as they both greet each other, why do the rest of the bridge crew not react to the request to contact Spock? That is, why doesn't anyone say WTF? Two Spocks? What's going on here? To assume that they all know or, in, or are in on what the deal is, is stretching it, because I thought Ambassador Spock was keeping it quiet that he was around nowadays. Good show, Kirk Greenfield, co-host of the Imperious Rex, Confessions of a Serial Surface Invader podcast. Uh, yeah, that's kind of up in the air as far as I can tell. I think in the first movie they kind of presented it as being a big secret, but in the next two they kind of come out and act as if everybody knows and it's no big deal. And... I would think if everybody knows it is a big deal, so it's kind of incongruous, but that's the way it is. <laughs> Any thoughts on that, Andy? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> he isn't the highest paid color man in the, in the industry for nothing. <laughs> I've, I've only seen Star Trek Into Darkness once, and I think I've kind of bleached it from my brain, so, you yeah, know. Fair enough, fair enough. I put you on the spot anyway, so... <laughs> All right, and that's it for the email mailbag, and thank you all for listening, and we'll catch you in two weeks. Through early morning fog I see Visions of the things to be The pains that are withheld for me I realize and I can see Suicide is painless, it brings on many changes, and I can take or leave it if I please. The game of life is hard to play, I'm gonna lose it anyway, the losing card I'll someday lay. So this is all I have to say. Suicide is painless. Suicide. It brings on many changes. And I can take or leave it if I please. The sword of time will pierce our skin. It doesn't hurt. I
Take on 